Welcome to Uphill Conversations, your ride-along partners for your emerging future. Everything in life worth having is uphill. You can't go uphill with downhill habits. It's time for another show with your host, Tim Picararo and Megan Finner. Are you ready to be inspired? Well, hello, and welcome to Uphill Conversations. I'm your host, Tim. And I'm Megan. And we're so glad you can join us today as you are living your life and heading towards your emerging future. Hopefully you are eliminating any downhill habits and canceling out all agreements with limiting beliefs. And yes, it is true. You can be more, do more, and have more. So, hey, Megan. Hey, Tim. What's going on? Not much. Just um, staying busy with all the great things that we're working on um, with our clients in the leadership development world. So um, it's been very cool to see the transformation with them. And, you know, it's summer. So just have a lot of travel, visiting family, um, doing all those great things you get to do when it's 90 degrees in South Carolina. South Carolina. Okay, so you want to talk about hot? So I'm escaping South Carolina. You're escaping? I'm escaping the heat. You're, you're going to leave the heat? Yeah. Well, so you know what I did? Hmm. So I went to a good friend um, that I've known for, I don't know, 15 plus years. Um, there was a wedding. So I went down with two, two of my good buddies are mm-hmm. with me, you know, I mean, there's group of us but the so i got my guys yeah and so your wingman yeah the wingman i guess <laughs> so it's girl car guy car going down you know and I, I mean it was great we're having mm-hmm. a good time so but then you know we got there and everything you know everything was fun it was just great we're having a good time wedding it was in south georgia too oh oh by the way because you know the podcast <laughs> up and vanished so and i used to go to tifton georgia with some musicians mm-hmm. and i remember seeing those billboards around the tara grinstead her you know, she disappeared. And I remember seeing those billboards, but recently I've been listening to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Well, it just so happens that where we were going, we had to go through Osceola, Georgia, which is in the podcast, which one of the guys with me, he used to travel with me to do music down there. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we just had all kinds of great discussions about that. But then of course, as we went into where the wedding was in this beautiful place, I mean, it was just outdoors at this, this, um, um, it's it's called Gin Creek. Mm -hmm. And so it's just beautiful, but it's outdoors and there's swamp all around, right? And just water. Mm-hmm. And not to mention that in the shade, it was 95. <laughs> <laughs> so you're at this wedding and and wedding's outside. Right. Okay. Wedding was beautiful. They, whoever was in charge did a good job, kept mm-hmm. it short and sweet. Then we moved, we just scooted on over to, you know, the dinner. Yeah. Sit down dinner. Seven o'clock at night was the wedding. Sat down, did the dinner. Everybody's eating. Everything's good. And then, of course, you know, you got to get your jam on. <laughs> so the, we go outside. Yeah. Music's pumping. Once again, back outside. Key right. is outside. And it's probably cooled down to, you know, like 90, 90 at that point. Maybe. <laughs> and I think I saw a breeze, breeze or felt one, but then I realized somebody was breathing on the dance floor <laughs> on me because they were almost about to pass out. Yeah. But the thing that I want to bring up about this mm-hmm. is that Usually, you know, when you're out there dancing, I like I like having a good time dancing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I don't try to take over the floor. You know, I could. I have some skills. <laughs> I got a couple, two, three skills. Uh-huh. But I'm just dancing, having a good time, whatever. But you can't just help. You have to watch people. <laughs> That's one of the best parts of being at a wedding. People try things. 
<laughs> I'm not sure. Like the they, sprinkler or like the lawnmower. lawnmower. There's things that I don't even know what it is. I'm like, I'm just like, okay. Like there were, there were people doing movements that, of course, so here's what would happen. Every eighth beat, they would hit the beat. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. so then it's like, it almost looks like it was timed, mm-hmm. but you know, it wasn't. So then you're wondering, was there sobriety? Right. Was there no sobriety? How was all this happening? And you never in your life in like an outdoor wedding like this in temperature like that, <laughs> you, you never think that it would actually kind of be okay to like fully soak like two shirts <laughs> through. And somehow you kind of look around and you go and, this is okay. Yeah, because everybody's doing everybody's it. Everybody's doing yeah. it. Yeah. Well, Everybody. it's like that wedding I went to, I told you about in Natchitoches, Louisiana in June. Natchitoches? Are you cussing? No. <laughs> this is a this is a clean show. No, it's pronounced Natchitoches. That's not how it's spelled, but you know, it's, how it's Louisiana, it? so I I couldn't tell you. Okay, we'll just move on. We'll look it's that like up it's later. spelled like Natchitoches or something is what but it looks Natchitoches like. But it's Natchitoches is the way they yeah, kind of put Natchitoches. it out Yeah, Natchitoches. Yes. So it was one, I think... 15 or something for that wedding outside so the groom refused yeah he refused to take off his suit so if you touched him he he was like completely so like the jacket too oh yeah so it was like a swimming pool in his suit (laughs) (laughs) but i mean but isn't that crazy like it's hot but when you're having fun i guess everybody just kind of you know lose yourself you know what i mean everybody's (laughs) just kind of but it's just great i and it's cool it's festive and you try and i'm i'm not saying this to be judgmental though megan (laughs) I'm not judging anybody because maybe they just don't have certain dance skills. That's right. fine. But they're having fun. Right. But you can't help but to look. So here's what I did not do. Okay? Okay. I'm not one of those people that whips out his phone so he can take video of this <laughs> and then post it in social channels. Mm. Now, I did see a lot of it, though. But just because you didn't post it to social channels, did you video any of it? I did video things, <laughs> but that's for my own visual pleasure later, <laughs> because every now and again, you have to look at something yeah, that kind of entertains the way you're, you know, right. your like you're having you know, a tough day and you just, just need to pull that out and you go just need a little and look at that and go, wow, that could have been me. <laughs> okay. Thank okay. you for letting me tell you about it because, yeah. you know, it is summer. Oh yeah. So. It is summer. Well, um, we have a really great guest uh, on the show today, um, Richard Barrett. He um, actually, I was uh, learned about him through my dad and some of the work that he did um, in his career. He had interfaced with uh, Richard Barrett's Value Center, which is um, a, a type of values-based coaching for teams. But um, he's an author, a speaker. He's internationally recognized um, thought leader on the evolution of human values in business and society. So I think you guys are really going to like it. But before we get to that, I have a question for Tim. What's your question? Okay, you ready? Yes, I can dance. <laughs> I could. I used to break so you dance, think by you the can way. Dance. No, I used to break dance in the 80s. I used to get linoleum <laughs> and cardboard, lay it down, and we would rule like, like, the, like a sidewalk. I wish there was video of that. <laughs> um, okay, so... I won competitions, wh- man. <laughs> what is the hardest thing you've ever had to do in your life? The hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life? In your life. It's a big question. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that is not, it's colossal. <laughs> the hardest thing, of it, I mean, I've had to do a lot of hard things. Um, I'll tell you what was the hardest thing, was I think, which was very difficult, I knew the value of what I was doing and why I was doing it, but I think the hardest thing for me 
was getting to the point where because of, you know, some of the things I experienced growing up, making the change for myself to not blame someone else mm-hmm. for the outcome of my life. I think, and that happened when I was, I mean, I did a little bit of it, you know, I, I understood it enough, but when I was 19 is when I really drew that hard line to say, my life doesn't have to look like any other thing. Mm-hmm. My life is going to look like, you know, the choices that I make. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I did it perfectly or anything like that, but it was when that was probably the hardest thing because, I mean, I went through some challenges. I believed it. I thought it was mm-hmm. true, but you have to like start working hard at changing the way you look at stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy, especially when you have a hard life. It's so easy to blame someone else oh, yeah. and say, if you didn't, if they didn't, and it's because of, mm-hmm. like, they were my little crutches. Like, it was easy for me to just point to it and go, well, you see where I came from, mm-hmm. right? You see what happened? Yeah. Hey, you see what I experienced? And then I realized that that wasn't working anymore. But, man, once I started actually taking the steps to not do it, it was such a challenge to not do it anymore. Mm-hmm. But then one day it shifted. And you start to see that even when you own it, it may not look even as good as you want it to look, but man, there was something about just owning that and going, this is mine and I own this. And you feel that liberation of even being able to fail or fail Mm -hmm. forward, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it was good or bad. And it wasn't about what it looked like. It was that you owned it and it looked like what you decided. Yeah. And then that was like a really, I think a very powerful and pivotal point in my life. But I would say that's probably one of the hardest things I had to do was let go of diffusing blame to someone Mm -hmm. else. Well, and also I think, you know, just like you said, it's hard not to blame that. But also, you know, when you make a change like that, you know, there's other people that are still going to be, you know, wondering like, well, why are you doing that? And so I think that um, there's like a whole nother step just after that hardest thing, you know, there's going to continue to be things that that you have to be intentional about. So thank you for sharing. My pleasure. Yeah. Hey, so Richard, though, I did, I dig, I did, I mean, it was a great call. And in this conversation with the guy, I was so inspired. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's, he's a, he's a happy gentleman. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course he was in a great place, Tuscany, Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay. Tuscany. I know. You know, having That's where food. he spends his summers. His summers, right. And he writes. The guy's mm-hmm. a worker, though. Mm-hmm. You know he's earned what he's doing, and he's just, but he's adding so much value. I was very touched by it. You know, at first, because, you know, you don't know when you get into a conversation with someone, and that's one of the joys of our sh- of our show is mm-hmm. we get to learn people. Yeah. But, man, it was just like, man, I want to hang out with this guy. Yeah, and he really opened up and shared a little bit of his personal journey along with just his knowledge and his expertise in this field of values that, um, you know, he didn't even really get into until the second half of his life. So um, really, really great conversation with him. Uh, I know that our listeners are going to enjoy it. So we would love to hear from you and um, what you think about this conversation with Richard. So remember that you can find us uh, on Twitter at Uphill Con. You can also connect with us on Facebook, um, on our Facebook page, and you can always write to us via email at tim at uphillconversations.co or megan at uphillconversations.co. So without any further delay, let's jump into this episode with Richard Barrett. 
Welcome to Uphill Conversations, Richard. It is great to have you on the show today. How is everything going in your world? Well, I think everything is going fantastically well in my world. I'm looking out on the Italian Tuscan landscape and it's beautifully sunny as usual. And uh, I'm working on another book as usual. And what can I say? Everything's perfect. That's great. Well, I, I, I love the fact that um, you get to join us all the way from, um, are, you're in Italy, is that right? Tuscany. Correct. Tuscany, okay. So, um, now, well, before you go any further, please tell me you have been just eating the very, very best <laughs> local food there is. <laughs> uh, well, actually, last night, that was exactly what I was doing. We have a favorite restaurant, which is on top of the hill, with amazing views of Tuscany, and... Um, yeah, I I did myself proud last night. I had the, <laughs> my favorite favorite items, including chocolate pudding with ice cream, and oh. I I took a photograph of that, and then I took a photograph of the plate when it was finished, and I put it on Facebook and said before and after. Uh, <laughs> that is that is great. I mean, you're, there's I'm so one day I'm gonna make it to Tuscany, and you you ever see that Seinfeld episode where uh, it was like you can't get a house in Tuscany? There was the I think it was the maestro that was with I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld, but it's like yeah, yeah I used to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, remember that episode where Jerry was oh. like, we're gonna go to Tuscany. And and like no, you, there's nothing to rent there. Everything is booked. Everything you, you can't go. You can't go. It was hilarious. And so I'm, I said, I, I when I saw that years ago, I was like, well, I guess I need to make sure that if I ever get to go to Tuscany, I check to make sure that everything's not booked. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, um, we were really fortunate, Tim and I, to be able to have an opportunity to read your book, um, The Values Driven Organization. And two major concepts that you delve into in that book are cultural entropy and cultural health. So as we talk today on this topic of focusing on values and culture as it relates to employee well-being and then sustainable performance, I'd appreciate it if you could give our listeners an overview of those two concepts. Sure, I'd love to. The, one is really the inverse of the other. So you ever been in an organization and, you know, the the leaders or your supervisors and managers are all like fear-driven, you know, oh, have you got this now? Is it ready? Mm -hmm. They're demanding or they are, my God, don't tell don't tell the other people what we're doing because they'll want to do it. Like, you know, <laughs> you know they don't, you know, they, and then, oh, uh, you know, it wasn't my fault. It was George's fault. You know, all of these, this, 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 these uh, sort of uh, what I call limiting values, demanding blame, internal competition. And, um, well, what I do is I can measure that. I, it's called cultural entropy. It's a degree of dysfunction in the um, organization. And uh, where does that, that dysfunctional energy come from? It comes from the managers, the supervisors, the leaders who are fear-driven. So cultural entropy is a measure of the fear-driven energy that's going on in an organization. And sometimes we call cultures like that toxic cultures. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Now, if you take the inverse of that, we, we measure that as, as a, way, a precise way of measuring it by uh, asking people what values do you see in the culture of your organization, and they can pick positive values or what I call limiting values. Mm -hmm. And 
if you look at the proportion of votes for limiting values like blame, internal competition, hierarchy, bureaucracy, and compare that percentage with the percentage of votes for positive values, that percentage is called cultural entropy. And the inverse of that is actually cultural health. So if you have an organization with 40% cultural entropy, which is very high, a lot of toxicity and a lot of leadership fear, then you've got cultural health of 60%. If, where if you've got a only 5% cultural entropy, you've got a 95% healthy organization. So uh, what I've been able to do is measure these kind of intangible things and make them obvious for people in the organization. Um, I love the way you that that question you know that you you pose to them to me, in order to measure, you know what what values do you see? I, I love it. It seems like it's a disarming question. It seems when you put that out there, it's you're not directing anyone, and it seems like a person would be more willing to participate. Um, was that a question by design? Which obviously it is by design, but because of that, because some people won't answer honestly or be open when you ask questions uh, when you're trying to do these types of surveying or testing. So uh, yeah, so let me explain the full survey. Employees go online, they pick. 10 values from a list which has been customized for the organization or 10 values are how they see their own what are their own personal values they pick 10 then what values do they see in the organization and they can choose between these positive and limiting values and then one values do they want to see in the organization what we do is we take these results and then map them to seven levels of consciousness so so um if you know, if one of your listeners wanted to know about, you know, their personal values and how they relate to personal consciousness, they could go to a, a simple website and get a result in two minutes. And that website would be www.valuespluralcentre.com slash PVA, personal values assessment. And you go online and you pick 10 values from a list and then two minutes later, you get this readback, this feedback of where your values lie in terms of levels of consciousness and you also get a description of who you are. In the last three years, over 400,000 people have done that. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And something that you've said is that, you know, the culture of an organization is this direct reflection of the values and beliefs of the leaders. And... In order to um, create cultural change, you have to work with these different departments and the different team leaders and get everybody on board. But when you're doing that initial survey within a company, do you generally see a big similarity between how the what the leaders are saying that their values are and where they're at versus where employee responses are coming in? Is there a mismatch or do you usually see that it's pretty um reflective of one another it varies to a, a very large extent there's something called what i call a shadow culture where the uh, the leaders report much higher levels of cultural entropy than the employees and the further down the hierarchy you go the less cultural entropy that there is so what mm. that means is the leaders are not working well together there's a lot of fear-driven energy at the top and at the bottom you don't feel it um, and then um, you can have it, uh, you know, slightly the other way around, uh, where the leaders have basically got their heads in the sand and they delegate all their problems to the next level of management. So they have a low level of cultural entropy uh, and uh, everything's fine and dandy for them. But the next level down is, wow, 
we see a high level of this cultural entropy, a low level of cultural health. So that's um, that's another way of looking at it. And um, so, uh, no, it's sometimes uh, very different as you look at the hierarchy as to how people see that. Mostly in, uh, how shall I put it, uh, public sector, um, municipalities or state governments and things of that nature, um, you the cult level of cultural entropy is pretty much equal at all levels. Um, but anyhow, it varies a lot. You can't predict. Um, and then you can also say another thing that comes up often is, you know, if you've got a head office with regional offices, very often they – the cultural health in the in the regional office is so much better than <laughs> cultural health in the head office where you have yeah. high level of cultural entropy because that's where all the big wigs are and that's where all the ego-driven uh, leaders uh, are sitting. Um, but that, again, that's not always true. Um, so, you know, it, it, it varies a lot, but um, rarely do we actually find that it's like the same everywhere. It is It changes in different parts of the organization. And, and that's interesting because if you have got one business unit uh, with a high level of cultural entropy and all the others have lows, now let's say you measure cultural entropy at 30% in this one unit and every other one is like 12%, well, you, you know, you, you know in that particular business unit you've got a fear-driven leader. And mm. you can then go in and use another of our tools called a leadership values assessment. You can actually measure the personal entropy of that leader because that leader is the one creating the culture in that business unit. And so we're able to slice and dice and dissect all the data to identify all these pockets of high cultural entropy and where the organization needs to focus its attention into in order to transform the culture. And going along with that idea, of course, there you're going to have different results and it really varies across organizations. Do you find that people are surprised generally with the results that you find? Is it like this aha moment of I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it? Or do you think that, you know, some people are it's a lot of times people are like, oh, yeah, I, I knew that was there. OK, so. um this is like sort of what I call internal validation. In other words, you do the survey, you present the results back, and people go, "Yep, that's it." <laughs> yep. And 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 like nearly like ninety to ninety five percent of the time, that's what it is. But what sometimes happens is the leadership team. Uh, uh, when we pull out the data by leadership team by business unit, and you look at the leadership team results. Sometimes it's uh, the results are, uh, are so bad that they don't own them. They say, "Ah, oh, there must be something wrong with the survey," uh, because they <laughs> yeah, because they that's not me. They can't, <laughs> yeah, they can't. You know, and, and all we did was ask them pick ten values about who you are, how, what you see in the organization, what you'd like to see, and and then we pulled their data together just simply for the leaders and for the middle managers and everybody else. And, 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 and they find it difficult to accept because they, they're scared because mm -hmm. they know that cultural – they may or may not know that cultural transformation begins with the personal transformation of the leaders and and, and they're scared. And uh, in some cases, they say like, yeah, well, no, we don't want to go ahead with this. So we can't handle this. <laughs> Fortunately, that's 
that doesn't happen too often, but it does happen. Right. Well, I love that the personal transformation of the leader and I'm, I'm all about people, you know, I'm, I'm big into self-actualization. I believe if you want to empower someone and to, in order to truly see empowerment, a person has to be able to self-actualize. They can't just give, be delegated something and just, you know, micromanaged or, you know, or like you said, give me this, where is it? All this other stuff. A person really needs to have the opportunity to, you know, to figure this out and to solve whatever it is that you've given to them, especially if you want to see, you know, um, you know, I like to use this term scaling people. If you want to grow, everyone focuses on the smarts part of the business, all the P&Ls and, you know, all the, you know, you know, their, their balance balance sheets and and how many units have we sold of this and that or what are our widgets doing and then I think to myself what about the people if you're going to scale your business why don't you scale your people and so when it comes into digging into personal transformation that's what makes it it's almost like a parents in a home you know it's like the kids like you know when you, if someone if a parent says to a kid hey don't don't do what I do just do what I say right and so the kid isn't understanding what change is they don't understand what real transformation looks like if anything they adopt to some sort of out of resistance or something that they feel is deplorable on how they were treating they treated they create a vow to never be like that or to do their own thing but they're not really getting you know uh, anything that's of value and healthy for them to model you know, they don't see that. So when you when you get with a leader, and I'm, I'm just wondering on this personal transformation side, when you do have the ones that are agreeable, or they at least look at it and say, I'll change my point of view and, and go ahead and say, okay, say your data is correct. What do I need to do now? So how do you help those leaders in that personal transformational, uh, transformation, um, um, get that posture and to set themselves on a road to where they see how important it is for them as an individual, but also how that also is something that can be now, um, you know, released and, and, and put out there for those who, you know, they're in charge of or that they are leading. How do you help them get on that path with that information? Well, I'm going to answer that question, but then I'm going to come back because you said something earlier. I want to follow up on that, but let's just answer that question. So here you've got the results now um, of the culture of the organization. You can see what it is by level, different departments. And so now you come to the leaders and you say, okay, so how how are we going to – organizational transformation begins with the personal transformation of the leaders. How are we going to do this for you? And so we have another tool then called the Leadership Values Assessment where the leader goes online and picks 10 values about how they feel they operate or how they think they operate. And they invite 15 or 20 people to go online and answer the same question and then answer maybe some other questions about certain behaviors. So we then add up all of the votes for all of the values from the 15 people who are the assessors and we compare the top 10 values of the assessors with the top 10 values of the leader. And then that it forms the basis of a two-hour coaching session with the leader um, to help the leader get, take on board the perspective of how that leader is seen by his close working colleagues. And we recommend mm. that everybody on the leadership team does that um, and uh, and then with that feedback they can make a personal commitment to one another about how they're going to change so that's a starting point for answering that question now I want to come back to the thing you said you're very passionate about self-actualization and that rang a bell for me and so 
Uh, I'm going to try and guess at your age, uh, maybe late 30s, early 40s. Uh, how old are you? I'm, I'll be 47 this year. Okay. All right. So I'm not surprised that you're focused on self-actualization because there are stages of development and you're right in the middle of the self-actualizing stage. The self-actualizing stage is from basically from early 40s to 50s, early 50s. Um, Prior to that, there's another stage of psychological development called the individuating stage, which is roughly from 25 to 39. And in that stage, what people are interested in is they've they've grown up in their community. They've adopted the values and beliefs of the community, of their peers, of their teachers. And now they get to the point of being finding freedom and autonomy to be who they really are. Um, and if you've never left home and never traveled, you may miss, you may not get to that state, <laughs> right. but most people do. And so what they do is they, 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 need to, they need to have the freedom and autonomy to try different things, to find out what they're good at and what they're not so good at. And so, you know, they want to work in an organization that allows them that possibility, uh, but doesn't punish them if they don't, they don't quite get it right. And also an organization that helps the, to mentor them during that period. That's the... That's the 30s. In the 40s, we want to move deeper. We want to we want to find meaning and purpose in our lives by understanding what are we passionate about and where do we like to direct our creativity. This is the self-actualization stage. If you can find that sense of meaning and purpose, the, the, the work you love to do, and you're able in the organization to find a position which enables you to live that passion, then you will be, you'll be really happy. And that's what, you know, if you want happy employees, what you have to do is you have to meet their needs at the stage of psychological development there. Then you come into the 50s and things change a little because now you've found this sense of meaning and purpose and you're fully expressing yourself. Now you want to make a difference in the world, but you can't make a difference until you can actually connect with people. So connecting with people and emotional intelligence is really important in the 50s. Now, men find that difficult because, you know, in, in the second stage of development, if it's like two to eight years old, they were told to be strong, not to show their emotions, not to show their feelings. And so by the time it comes to the, the 50s, then really not as good as women are at showing their emotions and their feelings and not very good at connecting. Um, women have a problem at the previous stage, the self-actualizing stage, because if they're married and they have kids and they've probably got aged parents, they tend to give priority to their kids, to their husband and to their aged parents. And they don't give themselves enough time to self-express. And so they become depressed and that can actually lead. I've written another book more uh, last year, which shows how these stages of development, when you don't live them, lead to various illnesses. So breast cancer, for example, is very often begins to accelerate in the late 40s because women find it difficult to self-actualize. Now, in the 50s, this connecting thing that men have, um, that can lead to prostate cancer um, in the late 50s because Um, they're not able to connect. So let's look at a workforce because typically in the 30s, you're seeing even 
you know, people that are listening to this podcast, some of them go into their jobs. So we've been talking about, um, you know, this individuation. We've been looking at, you know, this transformational, these concepts of transformation, assessing leadership where people are. Um, and, and so when you when you see all that and you see the person that goes to work, they're not in charge. They're a part of an They love what they do, possibly. Even they're in this individuation, you know, they're, that's what that's what's it's important to them. They want to really say, how do I become? What am I supposed to do here with this? How do I operate? I need some help when I'm working with people who aren't taking these assessments, who aren't doing any of these things. I can't just go and quit my job. <laughs> you know, maybe they're, that's where they are. I can't quit. You know, I can't, I wouldn't be able to manage three jobs to make up for what I have. How do you guide people who are in that, that time period that we're discussing here even to say, here's how you can not just survive in what your current situation is, but how you can help them as an individual thrive, even though they can't, they have no finger on the button to change anything that's around them. Okay, so the uh, what you're looking for at this in this thirties, late twenties, thirties, is opportunities, opportunities and challenges to find out to do what you look to, to to do many different things and find out what you're good at and what you're not so good at. Now, if you are working for a boss who is not giving you those opportunities, um, you're not going to feel very committed to your work. And uh, actually, there's not a lot you can do. Uh, I mean, you then probably have to put that energy into other aspects of your life. I mean, it sounds severe, but you know, if if you're if you're not trusted by your boss, if you've got a, a boss who is um, who, who is a, a micromanager, uh, it's going to be very very frustrating to live uh, in that situation. And you will not have a great sense of well-being and you will not thrive. Um, there is no magic formula to get out of that other than to focus on some other aspect of your life where you can make a contribution. Now, that other aspect of your life may be coaching your child's football team. That's one of the things my son, my stepson does. Chris, he does that. Um, but there are many other uh, av avenues uh, w w for which you can actually say explore uh, your gifts and talents um, outside of work, and that's generally what happens. And but but then you go to work not fully committed, and you know you're ready to go home at five o'clock as soon as the you know as soon as <laughs> a lot of them are ready to go. Over. They're ready to go home at like as soon as they as soon as they come in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're not get, if you're not getting up in the morning and can't wait to get to work, there's something wrong. And you know, and that may be if you're in your thirties, is because you're not being given freedom and autonomy and the opportunities and challenges. If you're in your forties, it's because you're not finding meaning and purpose. If it's in your fifties, it's because you're not able to make a difference. And if you're in your sixties, you're not able to make a contribution and be of service. And if if any of those are true, you will not feel a sense of well-being, and you will feel gradually feel depressed, frankly. And so if, and if there's a lot of, there's, excuse me, but no, there is ahead. a hell of a lot of depression in the workplace. <laughs> oh yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah. Believe, 
for these reasons, for these reasons. Yeah. And and I know, and even one of the things that, you know, stuck out to me in, in your book, uh, Richard, is you even, you highlight work-related stress and how that is just a major issue all over the world. And I mean, the, the dollar amount that really hit me hard was the annual cost of work-related stress in the U.S. is estimated to be around $300 billion. I mean, that is... That's incredible. It's an astronomical number. <laughs> so I know it's beyond belief, isn't it? I know, and and so I, so it, you're you're the employee. I think there's so there's so much you can do, but I I kind of want to flip that around and look at it from from a leadership standpoint. And if I'm someone who is running an organization. Hopefully, I'm aware enough that I'm touching in with my employees and and trying to get a feel for not only, you know, are they good at their job? Are they meeting their requirements? But, you know, are they engaged? And yeah. And, you know, you you. I think part of that is every employee really needs to know how they're making a difference on a daily basis to the organization. But in increasing employee engagement, you talk about tapping into discretionary energy. So as a leader, you know, what could I do differently tomorrow or next week to begin moving in the, in the right direction to be tapping into that discretionary energy of my team and really just to be maybe doing a better job, um, being more aware of you know, where they're at and meeting them where they're at? Um, what can you do uh, uh, if you're a if you know if you're in your late thirties, early forties, or you, or even if you're early thirties and you've been given a job as a team leader or a supervisor, the first thing you have to do is to learn how to lead yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's it, it's there's, there's no other way. Then once you've learned how to do that and you start leading, you can start to lead your team. You realize that actually. Each member of the team now has to start to lead yourself, and you become the facilitator of that. And as people, as people are able to meet the needs of the stage of psychological development they're at, meet the needs of leading self, leading a team, etc., they, you will unlock the discretionary energy. And as you progress in your leadership, you, what you will notice is that, you know. You increasingly, your ability to have an impact on the world depends on unleashing this energy in the people who work for you. And that, when the leader recognizes that and puts people into positions that align with what they're passionate about or what they're good at, then you'll have a very, very thriving team and a very, very thriving organization. That's the secret. Understanding how to unleash the energy of your team. That's really, really good. And, you know, there's, you know, uh, you know, personal growth business is huge nowadays. You know, everybody's a life coach and all these other things. And I and, and, and knowing that we have some great clients that we, you know, do leadership and team development. And I mean, we're, we stay very studied on it. We learn. Um, we love to pay attention. Conversations like this with you are great, Richard. And it's in you're providing a wealth of information but i think there's a strong amount of understanding that goes along with it it's it's proven which i really do appreciate it's you're not just providing theories you're giving us evidence theories are good but evidence is better and um mm. but i think it's great um 
The other thing that I was going to say is like around this topic, because with leadership and like team development, our goal is that our team, I mean, my thinking is this, if you want to have a great company, you know, grow your leaders from within, stop importing people, right? Let's not be in the export, import, export business with human beings. Let's be into grow your leaders from within. That's important. But anything leadership or anything team so you can have these programs, you can have all these, you know, here's your test, here's all the other stuff. But I, I really hear this strong amount of the importance of emotional intelligence. Like when you said a leader needs to learn to self-manage first. Do you see it heavily overlooked that people are very um, either aloof or distant from pursuing or thinking about emotional intelligence, how to develop it, how to improve upon it for themselves. Do you feel like there's just, it's just something that's not on the radar because of all the other cool information that may be floating around? Yeah. Um, so um, the uh, business schools don't, that's the, you know, the first point, business schools don't teach this. They, one or two now are beginning to recognize that the soft skills are, are the really hard things to learn and that's why they don't teach them because they don't know how to these you know these university professors haven't got a clue basically about emotional intelligence uh, you may find odd ones that do but you know what they're schooled in is strategy uh, branding uh, economics um, all these all these um, skills which are about doing the job they're just not they're not skilled in being mm -hmm. and and so um you know you, you, people coming out of university business school just miss out on that so they go into they go you know they've got their degree oh my god i got a you know a high degree in business school i'm i'm the bee's knees as we say in england you know <laughs> this is me you know i'm ready to go and they, so they become a little arrogant, and then, and then on top of that, they're very ambitious. Mm -hmm. and so they're not very often not willing even to do leadership values assessment and get feedback because they, you know, they've got it into their heads that you know they are the ones. They don't, you know, they they've had this great education, and now they're going to go out and tell people what to do. Well, um, you know, they're in for a, a nasty fall. Uh, because that's not what it's about. I love that because when, you know, you're pointing out, especially on what business schools do, they, they focus on that core stuff, the strategy, the action, the results, right? And then, but there's another side, it's the adaptive side, which includes the emotional intelligence, your organizational justice, character and development. That's what needs to be, I think, more central now. I feel like we have way too much learning and evidence that proves you can't just use the core stuff. We have to start infusing and putting it in this this more adaptive approach. So as I mentioned, the, the new leadership paradigm, you can, uh, for about $30, you can download um, 30, 30 odd exercises for leading self, leading a team, leading an organization. I mean, it's like a, it's an amazing giveaway uh, for anybody in this business. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, just recently, a, a Turkish company bought the complete rights to the Turkish uh, new leadership paradigm because they wanted to bring it, you know, this whole idea to Turkish, to Turkey. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyhow, um, uh, so yeah, and um, and at the same time, you know, if you're working. 
two more things. So we've always been talking about, about we're talking about hard skills and soft skills. Okay, so the soft skills are actually the hardest, and, and the soft skills are intimately linked to the stages of psychological development. What is important to somebody at a particular age differs depending on what age they're at. Now, um, one of the things you can do in a, with a, an intact team, sometimes we're working with teams that are not intact. Uh, so, so I'm talking about an intact team now that works together is you can do, uh, you remember I talked about the personal values assessment? You can have each team member go online and do the personal values assessment and bring it to hmm. the meet, to the, to the, to the, to the, um, it's a gathering. Let's let's meet. To let's the talk. team day. Yeah. yeah. And and so share. And then everybody shares what are my top ten values or top three values. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is um, when you go do that uh, when you get that feedback from the personal values assessment, there are actually some exercises, a couple of exercises in there which says, Well, okay, so now out of these top ten, pick three that are your top three. And what are the beliefs and what are the behaviors? And so when they've done that, you get people talking with each other in the team around what are their top three values and what are their beliefs and behaviors about that and in pairs or in triads. And you'll see an amazing thing happen. The, what will happen is that the conversations will become extremely energetic. And when you ask people what happened afterwards, they'll, find, they'll say, wow, I felt I really connected. And so why? Because when you expose your values to another person, you're exposing your inner core. And when you expose your inner core to another person, you can't help but connect. And that's the secret, to build, one of the secrets to building a great team. And Richard, in talking with you, it comes through so loud and clear that you are just incredibly passionate about um, all of the work that you've done around values and and culture and teams and um, and you know these different levels of development. Um, so I I'm curious, what is it that drew you to this work? How did you end up in this field and 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 doing what you get to do every day? Okay, good question. Now we get into a really funny answer. <laughs> no, no. So when I was 17, um, I uh, was trying to figure out, I, I, nobody in our family had ever been to university, so I was trying to figure out what I should do. And so I decided that I would try to become a transportation engineer. So I got a first class honors degree and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm for 20 odd years, I was out in the world doing that transformation stuff. I reached the top of my profession. I was working in the World Bank, traveling all over the world, helping governments build their transportation systems. And I suddenly got totally bored. I was in my 40s, okay, self-actualization self time. And I suddenly got bored and I realized, I said to myself, well, what have I been, I've never been bored. What, what have I been actually studying all my life? And I realized I'd been studying Eastern mysticism, spirituality, psychology. And I thought, my God, you know, when I was 17, I thought I had my soul say transportation, but actually it said transformation. <laughs> oh. <laughs> At that point in my mid forties, I realized that I was, you know, I had to shift and, and I, and here I was in a really top job mm -hmm. and I thought, well, how the hell am I going to do that? And I, you know, I, over the next five to six years, I 
step by step, I shifted into this transformation. I started writing books, um, and then my second, first book on personal transformation, second book on organizational transformation. That was my passport out of the World Bank because oh. I discovered this way of measuring culture by mapping values, and I've never looked back since. And so, you know, why am I passionate about this? It's my soul. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't explain it any other way. I mean, why are you passionate about what you do? It's your soul impulse. We all have a soul impulse, and the soul impulse comes through at the self-actualization state. You may feel it a little earlier, especially if you are, my definition of a millennial, you were brought up with the self-actualized parents because you weren't told you have to do this and this, but you were, your parents actually helped you to express yourself. And so when it comes to your 40s, that's the time of self-expression for the soul, you are already primed and ready to go. And so you move into the self-expression, the self-actualization stage quite easily. And and that's what happened to me. I was born to do this work. And I'm not only just doing this work in organizations, I'm also doing it in communities. And we're also mapping the values of nations. We map the values of 27 nations right now. Um, anyhow, uh, you know, just to cap all that off, I decided uh, this summer to write a book um, uh, I mean, I brought just brought out the book that we're talking about today, but I decided to write another book. I've nearly finished it called Everything I Know About Values. Mm-hmm. And um, because I thought, you know what? I've learned so much in the last 20 years. Um, I just need to put that out into the world. And, and, uh, and also what I'm going to be doing later this year is in our company, the Barra Value Center, we're going to form an academy for the advancement of human values, which wow. will look at research into the human evolution. Um, I've already, already written several books about human, human evolution. And you can find out all of these things at www.richardbarrett.net. That's Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T, richardbarrett.net. You can find out everything I'm doing. And um, yeah, uh, so there's lots of resources there to help listeners um you know, explore and investigate all the topics that we've been talking about today. Yeah. And I think, and maybe they can, it, it can help guide them to their soul impulse, their soul's impulse. I love that. That is just, that is just <laughs> wonderful. Cause everything you're talking about, that's where I am. Like Megan and I talk about this a lot in a few people yeah. in, in my inner circle. This is what I've been saying to them is like, I am willing yeah. to walk away. And like, I love how you said it, a passport, that is just beautiful. I mean, it's like taking a trip. I'm stamping, you know, I maybe stamped my old one, you know, my way of life and what I was doing years ago. And where I'm at is I'm literally only taking the trips, you know, on paths and roads I want to travel. And it's all for that purpose. So thank you so much for that. Uh, we have we have one like question we love to ask people. Um, what are three things that you are optimistic about? It could be personal or professional for, for the next, over the next 12 months, three things you are optimistic about. Well, you know, you're talking to Mr. Optimism um, <laughs> because I totally believe you create your own reality and when you, whatever you put out into the world is what you get back. So, um, I'm, uh, first of all, I'm on a personal level, I, I just can't stop writing books. I've written 11 books now. I'm going to write another two. I'm writing two this year. And I, I love the process because it's what I was born to do. And that's when I'm closest to my soul. So I, you know, I'm just 
so optimistic about this connection I have with my soul going on and on and on and me uh, and living in soul consciousness and um, so I, I love that and uh, I've developed a workshop now which I do here in Tuscany um, and you can find it on my website called uh, From uh, Wellbeing to Flourishing Living in Soul Consciousness it's a four-day workshop and I'll be putting that on in September and again uh, next May and I and I love that I'm just so optimistic about the what that is doing for people because it's taking the conversation we just had and try, I'm making it mainstream you know you can't it's hard to talk about the soul in an organization but actually that's what life is all about and so we have to bring that conversation into the workplace and the way I've done it is through these stages of psychological development and what I call ego soul dynamics that's personally what I'm optimistic about generally is um, young people I'm uh, I coach young people um, and I don't charge them for it but I come across some young people in the twenty uh, 20s and 30s who are uh, amazing young souls who have got stuck a little bit with the first three stages of development haven't quite mastered certain fears and just to work with these people and you know see and hear the the lights going uh, going off and and getting them back on track so that they can live the life they were meant to live i love that too and so i'm very optimistic about the future because i think that the old world is a dying it is the more pain that we have in the world the better it is i say because we're going to learn that we don't want to do that anymore pain is a gift pain is a gift because it tells you exactly what's wrong and so if you listen to the pain and you go to the source of the pain you'll find out what needs to change and there's a lot of pain in the world right now and um, so let's rejoice about that pain because it will enable the transformation to happen Wow. That is just, that is incredible. I mean, the things you're talking about, those are the passions we have. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis is, pain's God's megaphone to a deaf ear. And it's because he's trying to speak to you. He's like, listen to that. Hear what it is, because change is trying to work with you, you know, evolving, shifting, adjusting. And so, um, anyways, uh, th you this has been an unbelievably inspirational conversation, and um, we, we're definitely going to stay in touch with you. Um, I'm going to uh, consume your books, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to pass them on. I've got already people in my mind that I'm going to buy copies for and send them to. So, um, <laughs> you've been you've been wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> I can't help it. It's just who I am. <laughs> <laughs> but we love it. We do. We absolutely love it. Well, this has been another episode of Uphill Conversations. We've been speaking with Richard Barrett, who, um, once again, just very moving conversation, very thoughtful, very mindful, but it's also very visionary. And um, always remember, you can be more, do more, and have more. Your current condition does not match your emerging future. Anything worth having is uphill, but you cannot go uphill with downhill habits. But most importantly, you'll see myself, Megan, and Richard on the hill. You've been listening to Uphill Conversations. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to the show at uphillconversations.co. See you on the hill.